0: we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning if you want to turn there just a refresher in the last chapter Paul taught the Corinthians about the value of our conscience and how far we might go in order to protect our brother's faith and in this chapter he's moving on to talk about how far we might go to promote the faith it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9 it's uh, also, you'll note, perhaps it's it's a lengthy chapter. Um, I tried really hard to figure out how to cut it in half or someplace, and and it just wouldn't it wouldn't cut. You can't you can't uh, do the first half, and then you're left without a conclusion, and you can't do the second half with no one, uh, without understanding why it's why it's there. So so it's all together, and that's how Paul wants it, I think. And so let's hear God's word here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run We give you thanks for calling your people here this morning, and we pray that you would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would edify us, that you would challenge us, confront us where we need that, Lord, and and help us to grow. Please, by your Holy Spirit, speak to your people through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ask you a question I'm sure you've thought about before, at least uh, on a case by case basis, anyway. How important are your rights? We're presented with new opportunities to challenge this all the time. Just think about what happens uh, when it seems like one of those rights is under threat, or perhaps maybe a little bit worse, it's already been compromised or taken away. What do you do in that place? how far would you go to defend it or to get it back? What happens, for instance, when you go through the drive-thru and you come out on the other side and you notice that you're missing a taco? That was me yesterday. Man, the blood boils. It's just like, how dare they? Don't they know I I paid for that? I earned that money. They owe me. It's like forced deprivation. What, What do you do if your employer shorts your paycheck? A cop writes you a ticket without cause. Your child who you've poured your life into somehow gets it in their head that they are entitled to make your house their house. A government deprives you of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, you know, it depends on the right, of course, but we're pre-programmed in a certain sense to fight, right? Right? And sometimes the injustice of it, it, it screams out at us so loud that we feel like we can't do anything else but fight. We have to fight. That's why Mel Gibson's Braveheart speech, it resonates so deeply with us. You, you all remember that, right? I hope so. And If you haven't, you need to check it out. Uh, you can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom, right? It's the rally cry. As Americans, it makes us get up and... And cheer, it's like, yes, it's the banner under which our country was born. Rights, and particularly certain inalienable ones, are what drove early American colonists to fight, kill, and die for. And We're thankful for that. Rights are also the thing that are at issue in Corinth. Whether by ignorance or intention, the Corinthians have deprived Paul of his rights, And what we have here in chapter 9 is what Paul's doing about that. First, he answers the question of whether he has any rights. Second, he explains the ground for those rights. And third, the shocking part, he explains what he does with those rights. Let's look at these in turn. First, does Paul have any rights? He says, verse 1 through 2, "'Am I not free?' Which is to say, do I not have any rights? And then he continues this way. Well, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Can you, I don't know if it's coming across to you, but, but can you hear the sense of personal frustration in his voice? It's not so abnormal to hear an intense Paul comes across a lot in his letters. But this is, this is a downright fiery Paul. It's as if he himself has taken offense at the Corinthians. And so we need to ask, what's the big deal? Well, somehow, some way, the Corinthians have misconstrued their parts in the relationship. Instead of appreciating Paul for his years of ministry on their behalf, the fact that he's the one that left safety and comfort to come to them, uh, a, a destitute people, and bring them the gospel of their salvation, that he's been the one that's laboring for their good and for their growth by prayer and teaching and, and care. Ever since, they seem to be pushing him off. Instead of saying, um, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, it's more along the lines of, who do you think you are, Paul? Uh, and why are you still in our, our space here? It's a little bit like that stereotypical parent teenager dynamic. By analogy, the Corinthians have been eating Paul's food, they've been wearing his clothes, they've been receiving his gifts since birth. But now somehow they feel like they're the ones who have been doing Paul the favor all of this time. We've graced you with our presence, and, and yet you're still here. In other words, Paul's frustration springs from the fact that his children in the faith, his workmanship in the Lord that he's labored long, long for, sacrificed for, are taking him for granted. Have you ever felt that before? It doesn't feel good. It feels like uh, being taken advantage of, which is really... Um, blood boiling, but, but without the benefit of the injustice label. So instead of everyone recognizing that, that something's wrong, you, you're being taken advantage of, it's, it's just you, your own personal problem. You need to work that out. It's in solitude. And so Paul goes on to press the Corinthians to recognize the injustice of it. He says, verse 3 through 6, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, like everybody else does? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living or to be compensated by the ones they serve? Again, it's like that parent to an over-entitled teenager? Do we we really not have any rights over you? Are we the ones who are indebted to you, or is it really the other way around? And and the answer is, very clearly here, it's the the other way around. It's the Corinthians who have confused the relationship, and so Paul goes on at great length to explain how the dynamic is supposed to work, point to the ground for his rights. He asks, verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? In other words, this this really shouldn't be very strange to you because everywhere you look, even in your own life, in regular society, in agriculture, in industry, everywhere a workman expects to receive support from his work and his work is expected to support him. It's a kind of natural law, as it were, and that should be enough. He's given three examples. It's all around them, and yet it's not. Paul continues without even an interruption. He adds a second justification in verse 8. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? In that, other words, not only is this principle found in the natural order, but it's, it's found in the order that God himself has prescribed for man. He says, verse 9, for it is written, in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then, you know, since that wasn't quite self-explanatory for the Corinthians, Paul provides the exegesis as well. He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak, listen not this, certainly, certainly for our sake? Answer, it was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow and hope, and the thresher thresh and hope, sharing in the crop. And then, if that still wasn't self-explanatory, Paul continues still further. He gives this specific application to them. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And of course, again, the answer is yes. And you think, well, surely that's enough. They, they must get it. But Paul doesn't stop. He, he gives yet a third illustration. He says, verse 13 through 14: Do you not know that those who are employed in the service of the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And thus Paul has has laid out a perfectly legitimate, from every angle kind of defense. By the law of nature and Moses and from the Lord, wherever a man works, there's a right expectation that he should receive material compensation or support from that work. And so Paul has a right to be compensated for his work among the Corinthians. And so does every laborer in their respective fields. And so, I thought it would be good for us to take an offering. No, just just kidding. No, no, not not really. Uh, but, But in all seriousness, we have to ask, what exactly is Paul after? Why does he feel the need to go to such great lengths to establish his right to their support? What does he mean for them to do with this? Does he, does he want them to feel bad, for instance? Does he want them to right the wrong by repaying him for services rendered? Does he want to make sure that the future congregations, that they pay their ministers? What is it? Well, well, it's no on all of these counts, and we'll see that shortly, but, but it, that unless they first recognize that he has this right, they won't be able to recognize the significance of what he's done with it. It's something of the consequence of of what happens when we take people and things for granted. We might enjoy the benefits, but we won't be able to grasp what they really mean. And so to that end, now having understood that Paul has this right, let's move there. Point three, what does he do with it? What does he do with it? Well, it's, it's certainly not, I think, what we would expect. Paul restrains the use of his rights. He restrains the use of his rights. He says, verse 12b, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Verse 15a, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. And again, verse 19a, For though I am free from all, under no allegiance or obligation to any man, I have made myself a servant of all. And right there we might be tempted to say, Well, Okay, well, I give up. Um, couldn't, couldn't we have been better served by, by Paul if you had just skipped this part of, of the letter? What, what are we doing here? If you have the right, but you, Paul, don't want to make use of it, then isn't that your problem? Why, why even tell us about it in the first place? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that it answers the question of why someone would willingly give up their pay Willingly serve those to whom they have no obligation. Is that something you just jump up at the opportunity for? And so what is that for Paul? Well, he gives us a few answers and surprisingly at even greater length than the justification he gave for his rights. Verse 12c, he says, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. 15b. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting, which is verse 18b, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge. And in verse 22b, he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And so, despite the many answers here and the thoroughness of their explanations they're all saying essentially the same thing, which he puts most succinctly in verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. In other words, Paul's answer is the gospel. The reason he's willing to restrain his rights isn't because he doesn't have a legitimate claim to them, but because the gospel is even more important to him. And that's what he's trying to get them to see. And so my question for you is that is that how you see it? Is the gospel more important to you than your rights? And I think sadly, the answer for many of us, just as it was for the Corinthians, is not really. That's the deep heart problem here. We tend towards a take-it-or-leave-it, convenience-style approach to our faith. If it fits our schedule, if it fits our budget, it doesn't cost too much, it doesn't take too much time, it's not too hard, and in general, it it does more for us than we do for it, than, than we might consider it. And that's not really a very Christian approach to Christianity. That's what Paul gets at in his final illustration. He says, verse 24, and following, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run. Imperative you run, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control or restraint in all things. They, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So can you see what Paul is saying here? It's, it's not that only one of us gets saved, so like that bear joke, make sure you outrun your friends, but, but that we're not just hanging out down here in a holding pattern until Christ returns. We're supposed to be fully and fervently engaged in an urgent mission. In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus when he was coming back, it's that how long do we have to wait around question. Jesus doesn't even entertain it. He says Acts 1-7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Our job isn't speculation. Our job isn't waiting around. Our job isn't biding our time or doing our own thing until, until the real work comes. But as Jesus continues, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, until Christ returns, we're supposed to be like disciplined athletes in a race. We have an urgent mission to bring the gospel that sinners can be saved in Christ to all the ends of the earth. And Paul is focused on that mission like a laser. Corinthians, however, are not. And oftentimes, we are not. To use Paul's analogy, a great many of us are running after perishable wreaths, sitting on the sidelines like spectators, or perhaps we don't even realize that there's a race to be run at all. And so why? What makes Paul say, verse 15, see, I'd rather die, I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me Not of my rights, but of my ground for boasting, which is to restrain or suffer the loss of my rights, which is to deprive myself of anything in my power to deprive myself of in order to advance the cause of Christ and us, like a little kid. Are there any other options? Are there any other choices available to me where I don't have to restrain or suffer anything? What's driving Paul that's not driving us? Well, it's really the same thing that the Corinthians are missing. As much as Paul genuinely loves them, it's, he's quite explicitly not ministering to them because of what they've done or could do for him. It's not based on a, an equation of reciprocation. And that's even in the case with something as big a deal as compensation. There's a lot. You know, when, when we get into the money conversation, boy, does that clarify things. That's how far I'll go. So even when it's that big a deal, that's not it, but it's because of the surpassing worth of what Christ has done for him, and the surpassing of worth of what he hopes to see, that that work of Christ extended to them. To put it another way, what what separates Paul's attitude from theirs is that in just the same way that they've taken Paul for granted, they've taken Christ for granted. and In the wake of that, they've failed to grasp the significance of the gospel, Whenever that happens, it causes a short circuit of sorts in in the Christian life. In missing the significance of what we've received, we also miss the response that should naturally, that's supposed to naturally flow from that. And as a result, Christian disciplines can start to feel artificial, forced, wearying, Christian life itself can seem like an exercise of self-deprivation without cause or a, a spiritual pipe dream or, to use Paul's words, like beating the air. We can start to feel like engaging or dabbling in sin is our reward because we've sacrificed. We've done the meritorious work. And so we're owed a little something. And so again, how about you? To what extent have you taken the Lord for granted, and thereby missed the significance of the gospel. How do we know? Well, I, I think Paul's diagnostic can be helpful here. It's the question of what we're running after and how fast we're running. How far would we go for the sake of the gospel? Would you restrain your rights, rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? Would you be willing to put your life on the line? for the sake of the gospel? Those are high things. Let's go a little lower. What, what about your money? How far would you give out of what surplus is available to you or or with sacrificial intentionality? Would, you, would you, you consider taking on additional work so that you might be able to give more? What about pain? In his book on evangelism, Rico Tice describes the necessity of crossing the pain line in order to share our faith. It's that line where we suffer, we're willing to endure potential anxiety, discomfort, inconvenience, rejection, loss of reputation, in order to share the gospel. Are we willing to cross that line? What about our home? Let's go a little lower. Are we we willing to open up our home to a brother or sister? Are we willing to open up our home to a stranger, these are the things that Paul is talking about here it's the sort of thing that's supposed to be a natural response to the gospel, but for so many of us it's it's not that those things aren't natural they're they're like pulling teeth for us and so how do we grow here what's the corrective for for taking the Lord for granted? well it's not so dissimilar to the corrective for taking Paul or our parents or or anyone else for granted. It comes from gaining a deeper understanding of what they've done for us and why. And so to that end, let's just take a moment to remind ourselves of of what Christ has done for us and why. I think a helpful question is, um, what right do we have to the mercy of God? What entitles us to reconciliation with the Father? justification, sanctification, adoption? What entitles us to the forgiveness of our sins, an incorruptible inheritance, holiness, glory, perfect communion with Christ and all our brothers and sisters in Christ? What entitles us to eternal life? Well, the answer for our part, and you know this, is not a We didn't do any special meritorious favors. We didn't contribute a single part. We brought our debts and debts alone. And so the only reason we enjoy any of these things is because of Christ, who quite remarkably, and think about this, and wholly of his own accord, accord, restrained his rights. Rights to glory, rights to justice, rights to power. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Beyond which rights, beyond which we, we, have, we have never had or could fully comprehend. He, he lays down the king of life, lays down his life. And why? Because we're, we're good guys on the inside? No. Because he, he owed it to us? No. But, but interestingly, for the sake of the gospel, which has become for us everything, the ground for every good thing, for every right that we enjoy, both in this life and the one to come. That's how significant the gospel is. And so how are we supposed to respond to that? Well, this is interesting, too. What, what does Christ want us to do with this? Is, is there a purgatory, for instance, that awaits where, where Christ is, is, is planning for us to repay all of our debts? And remarkably and thankfully, the answer is no. While the gospel was incomprehensibly costly to him, he has made it a completely free gift to us. And so in that sense, Paul here, in restraining his rights and in, in suffering whatever is possible for him to suffer for the sake of the gospel, he's following Christ. He's not reminding us what he's done in order to collect repayment, but because he's following Christ in order that he might acquaint us with the significance of Christ. And in that, we might be appropriately moved by Christ. That response that's supposed to be natural to the gospel of Christ would be natural for us. And that is to get in the race and run for Christ. That's what we need to take away from here Having been reawakened to the significance of the gospel, we need to be moved to run more earnestly. And so let's be moved. You see, we we have neither received a perishable wreath, that's not what we're chasing, nor are we engaged in an aimless, beating the air kind of spiritual pipe dream exercises. That's, a, that's not what Christianity is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel of happy thoughts, it's not Buddhism. But it's genuine flesh and blood resurrection, eternal life, real life, real liberty, real happiness, forever. And so let's neither take Christ for granted nor cling to these temporal gifts, these rights, as if they are our ultimate self-derived entitlements. But, But realizing the surpassing worth of Christ... Of all that we have in him, that he is the ground for everything that we enjoy. Let's run this race with everything that we have for him. You see, that's who stands behind Paul's, we endure anything rather than, I would rather die than, and I've made myself a servant of all. And it's who, it's who needs to stand, it's, it's who needs to stand behind us, it's who we need to grasp so that we can say with increasing frequency, I do it all for the sake of the gospel." And so for the sake of the gospel, that's what, that we've received and that we've been appointed witnesses, let's not settle for a comfortable, complacent, convenience-style Christianity. I remember coming out to West Michigan and, um, you know, I experienced that sense of call partially because of uh, living in uh, West Missouri. It's Bible Belt, Missouri. There's, a, there's multiple churches on every corner. Um, it sounds like West Michigan to an extent, and I visited many of those, and I, and I saw sad churches, people uh, preaching and, and, and teaching that had very uh, little qualifications to preach and teach. It, it, it was an experience of the blind leading the blind, and I, and I thought, you know, well, if there's that much need, perhaps the Lord may even use me, and so, so I, I pursued uh, heading in that direction. Um, and then I came out here to West Michigan, and I see this, this army of saints that's been catechized to a level that I've never ever seen before, um, that is more spiritually vital and vibrant than I've ever seen before. And I just thought to myself, you know, what would it be like if that army were to get up and mobilize, if that army were to get up and, and start running? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't you like to see that? Um, I would like to see that, and, and, and that's happening to some degree, but, but wouldn't you see, like to see a, a, a Pauline style on fire for the Lord? I can't help myself but run for and after the Lord. That's what, that's what Paul's calling us to here. We are Christ-appointed witnesses, and so let's look to Christ, and in the power of Christ, let's strive to be a church that is increasingly on the run for Christ and after Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, you have been and you are so abundantly, overflowingly, incredibly, miraculously good to us, Lord. Patient and long-suffering with us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we might catch a vision like Paul has of the sweetness of Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel and that that might move us, Lord. May we be your witnesses. May may people look at us and say, man, what is that person about? And we can answer, we are about Christ. Lord, please help us to grow here for your glory and for our own sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.